Today's 20 minutes in Taking 20 is going to be spent with Steve Schott, and I'm so excited to introduce you to him. Um, he lived in Los Angeles for 15 years, was a, a big part of television production there, but he actually has over 40 years of experience in TV, film, advertising. It's funny, we get on these um, little hangout sessions where we talk about some of the people he's worked with. He's worked with Dolly Parton. He has some great Dolly stories. And yes, he says she's as wonderful and nice as we all hope she is. Um, some great stories about her meeting fans and just being absolutely lovely. Um, he, Steve worked on the movie The Final Season, was a producer. And he talks with us in this next 20 minutes about some of the tougher decisions he's made, but also some of the wonderful experiences. Because not only has he worked with Jeff Foxworthy and a bunch of people like Bonnie Hunt, but he also worked with Carol Burnett. So yes, you'll see, I can't stop myself from asking about Carol Burnett. He's done uh, commercials for like Walmart, Hy-Vee, McDonald's. So without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Steve Schott. Here he is, Taking 20. Uh, it is our first Taking 20 together, um, but I, I have to laugh, Steve, because we've done a lot of production stuff. Um, gosh, we got to do a stage bit together, and one of the first times, maybe it was the first time we ever worked together, was on a pilot for a show, and that day you brought glasses to set from working with Carol Burnett and company. And I just, it was goosebumpy for me. And I know we all love Jeff Foxworthy and Bonnie Hunt, but we only have 20 minutes. So can you just tell us a little bit about what it was like working with Carol Burnett and that team that it's like, oh my God, it had to have been amazing. It was amazing. It, uh, and I, I worked for her for seven years, got to know her pretty well. We did a lot of shows together. I sold her TV series, uh, the Carol Burnett and friends. Um, I got to meet a lot of the folks from the original show. I mean, Peter Matz, who was the conductor and Bob Mackie and, and the writers and the dancers and the actors. And I got to work with the whole cast. We did a couple of reunion shows, so that was fun. But because of Carol, I got to meet all kinds of amazing people that we brought in for different shows or different, uh, different processes. So it, it was really fun. Um, the, the reunion shows were really something else because you know, I watched the show growing up, like a lot of us did. And then you're in the rehearsal hall with Tim and Harvey and Vicky and Carol, and they start in on each other. And it's hysterical. It's the funniest part of the show. It was actually better than the actual show that we made. Um, and I could just sit there being paid to sit in a rehearsal hall with this talent and just laugh my butt off. So yeah, it was, it was a pure joy and, and it's, it, there's nothing comparable to it. I mean, I got lucky. I got very, very lucky to be able to work not only with her, but you know all the other stars that we got to work with. And not just the people on camera, but the behind the scenes, the, the orchestra, we had a live orchestra, we, uh, the dancers, the singers, the writers, the, the designers of the sets. Uh, it, it was amazing, very, very fun. And I think part of it, and I, I told a little bit about your career in the, the open leading up to this. And of course, we only have 20 minutes. It would take, I mean, we could go on for hours and maybe we will. If people have interest, um, we'll do maybe a, a full class on some of this because you come from the production end. Um, you've, you've worked on movies. You've worked on these big shows. But at one point in your career, you're in L.A., and um, I think in this Taking 20 series, we're realizing a lot of us are making decisions based on family now. You made a huge one um, to leave LA because of your family. How did that even come about? And, and it couldn't have been an easy 
thing to go through. It wasn't. My career was taken off. We had I'd done Carol Burnett shows and, and we were starting in other shows. We'd worked with Bonnie. We were doing a lot of things. And then the L.A. riots hit. And that was in 92. And it really freaked me out. Um, I spent a month uh, after the riots working in a church in downtown or in down, uh, South Central L.A. And it was a distribution center. And so we fed three meals a day and we unloaded and loaded trucks that went off to other churches. And I just saw the hatred. I saw the anger. I saw the, the divided city. And I came home one day and I remember telling my wife that, you know, why do we live here? We have no other family here. We have no relatives in LA and our kids are gonna grow up in this really horrible city. We gotta get out. And so we decided to leave. And it was a really hard decision, but I needed to make it with her for my boys. My boys were uh, nine and 10 at the time when we left. And I didn't want them growing up in a city that they could get killed on, literally. Or go to schools where they could get stabbed because that was happening in LA schools in, at that period in, in 92. So I decided, well, you know what? I've been a producer, I've, I've done Hollywood, it's time to leave. And uh, sent the family home. Uh, 93, we moved to Iowa. Um, and it was, as we were getting ready to go, I got a job to stay in LA and work. So took the family home in, home in June, uh, got them settled in here in Iowa, went back to LA. Um, and that's of course when the flooding happened in, in Des Moines, right, in Iowa. And so they were here being flooded. I was working seven days a week doing a couple of shows. Um, and then I thought I was all over. And I remember driving back to Iowa, uh, you know, from LA in my 66 uh, Mustang and going, I don't know what I'm going to do. I really didn't know what I was going to do because there wasn't any production in Iowa. I mean, really, you know, so I knew that wasn't going to happen. So on the drive home, I decided, you know what, I'm going to sell hot tubs. I like hot tubs. I like sitting in hot tubs. I can sell hot tubs. And it's cold in Iowa, so they must want hot tubs. And that was my plan. <laughs> and it was scary. It was frightening. It was, um, you know, I didn't know how I was going to make a living. I really honestly didn't know what we were going to do. So I gave up my career. I thought I did, but I gave up my career for my boys because I think sometimes you have to make those hard decisions. You know, you have to decide uh, what's more important to you in life. And my boys and my marriage were absolutely more important than my career. And everybody thought I was nuts. Everybody said, you, you can't do this. It's not going to work out. You're going to hate it. You'll be back in a year. Um, and it's the best move I ever made. It's and funny, but you never, did you ever sell a single hot tub? I never got in the hot tub sales business ever. <laughs> because how did that happen? Because you ended up back in the business. Well, that's just it. I thought I was done. And then I get a call and say, hey, we're doing a show. You want to come help? So I commuted for the next six years. I went back and forth from Des Moines to L.A. and did Foxworthy and Bonnie Hunt shows and more Carol Burnett shows and specials. And and uh, then I finally, in 99, I said, you know, that's it. This is killing me. Uh, I don't see my boys enough. I don't see my wife enough. They need me. They were teenagers at that point. And I literally said, that's it. I'm done. But at that point, I had established enough connections here in Iowa. There was enough production in Iowa that I actually got jobs here. So I landed up being staying a producer in Iowa. Yeah, I mean, feature film. And I know there was some heartbreak involved with that. I, I think that's the thing that sometimes we look and we go, oh, movie producer. But you've been through some stuff. 
Um, and I, I, do you, do you feel like you turn to other people? And I think that's what part of this series has been about is when we're resilient, do, when do we reach out for help? And sometimes we forget to, I mean, did, were you forced at some point to just be like, okay, I need some help? You know, I did that a lot because in our industry, you know, we're freelancers, we, we're gig workers, you get a job and then it's over and you don't know what you're going to do. So you start calling around and then you find out that your buddy's in the same boat you are. And so you go and have a drink and, you, you know, you, you pour your heart out and go, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Why are we doing this? Are we stupid or what? Um, yeah, you have to reach out. You can't do it alone. And, and thank God I had a very supportive wife who understood my passion, understood what I did. She had been in the industry and she put up with it. You know, she put up with the no money this week. And, you know, I don't know how we're going to pay for groceries to, oh, we're rich now. Let's go on vacation. You know? <laughs> Welcome to the industry. By the way, if you're not in the entertainment industry and you're, you're saying, wait, this is how this works. Mm -hmm. it's, it's literally feast or famine. And even the people that you think are famous, uh, you know, will book a movie. And if they don't manage their funds well, you know, you hear stories about them losing everything because you're, you're only as good as your last job. I, it's... Uh, you and don't I, know when that next job is. Even if you're famous, that doesn't mean that the right project comes along or the timing comes along or the people you want to work with are available. And you could sit out for a year, two years and not work, literally not work. And I think that's part of what's happening with um, our, our new quarantine type situation is we're we're realizing what you know routine means to people. And for those of us who have been gig workers all this time, well, I've never had a routine. I mean, you just have to make yourself have a routine. Um, and I know you and I have joked about, you know, you, I, I may or, I, I've said this in almost all of the interviews, the week or so where I wore the same outfit, like all week, right. I finally called like you and a couple of my friends and like, I got to I have to take a shower, <laughs> get a life. And, and you, because you're my friend, were like, you do? Go take a shower. Yeah. Um, are there people, is there anybody in particular or a story you can think of um, a time when somebody's influenced you to kind of get up and get going? Or maybe when you've influenced someone besides me, because you've given me the speech before. Literally, it was go take a shower, get dressed, yeah. make a project. I, I've been really lucky. I've had mentors and uh, people who have taken me under their wing and trained me. To, uh, two particular producers, uh, a Robert Lovenheim and a Robert Wright, two Roberts. And they really were there for me when I needed that kind of talking to when I was out of work and I would call one of them and they'd say, well, get your butt down here and we'll find someone for you to do, <laughs> you know? And actually Bob Lovenheim, I landed up, uh, I was a computer consultant in between shows. And so he put me to work on his computers and, and he was one of my main clients. I, and then he introduced me to a lot of other people. And all of a sudden I was working with all these writers and producers and directors helping them with their computers. So I was, that's how I survived in between. In between, um, you need to depend on others. You can't do it alone. And you know, it used to be you get a job, you work there for 20, 30 years, you retire. You know, that's gone. I don't care what business you're in. There is no guarantee. Businesses go out, they they go bankrupt. You know, I mean, look at all the companies, all the the box stores that have gone out of business, and you had a job at Sears, and for all those years, and now what? You're on the street. There is no guarantees. And we're about a halfway of our 20 minutes. And that's the thing, 20 minutes flies by. And there's so much we could talk about. I know you're working with college students right now. So you're seeing you know, this next generation. And I, I think 
I, the word fear comes up um, and we talked a little bit about that, but I've also heard you talk about how um, enlightened this next generation is. They're gonna have to make their own work. I mean, what's your thought on these younger kids? And, and maybe, so for those of us who are watching who maybe are older and we're a little worried about them, or I think we're gonna have some of those college age folks watching. Can you give a little, little bit of what you've been seeing as an instructor running a program at college? You know, I'm pretty encouraged by what I see. I mean, there's the, the both ends of the spectrum, but I think most of them understand that this is a gig work kind of thing, that there's very few actual jobs that pay a full-time salary and they're hard to come by. And so it's really, and, and I talk to them about it. I mean, I, I think I try to scare them out of it, like, go away, don't, don't do this if you really want a real life. And they hang in there, you know, they come back and say, no, this is what I want to do. And I said, all right, if you have the passion for it, but understand this is what's going to happen to you. You know, you're going to have a job for a week and then you're not going to have a job for three weeks and you better be prepared for that. And, and I think a lot of them are because they're not used to that kind of steady job thing that we grew up with. They've watched their parents change jobs, go, you know, move, do it go from one business to another, restart their whole lives and their whole careers over sometimes. And they tell me these stories. So I think they're more, open to the idea that it's going to be, um, you know, work as you can find it. Yeah, it's, and we're definitely in an interesting time. And I, I think that um, just looking at um, just even our history and, and some of the shows we've worked on, and I know you worked on infomercials. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, again, we could go for days on this, but, and I, I know I always do this, I do this prep with everybody before the interview, and then I throw something at them. But do you have one really good infomercial story, like just something funny or something? Because I think people don't realize what goes on behind the scenes in that world because it's partially live and unscripted and partially scripted. Yeah, uh, we try to script it, but that never actually works out, does it? it you kind of go off script because, you know, sometimes uh, we, you know, everything goes wrong. The product doesn't work. You know, you've tested it, you thought it worked, and then you're on camera and the thing falls apart in your hand and you go, ah, what do we do now? Um, you know, others, we have strange talents sometimes that we have to work with. I don't know that I want to name names, but uh, the OxyClean guy. Um, and, you know, he had a habit to it. Every time I, I was the AD on the set with him, uh, the assistant director, and I would call roll cameras. And that's when he decided to unzip his pants and tuck his shirt in and resettle everything. But he didn't just unzip them a little bit. He like pulled them down. Cameras are rolling. He would tuck everything in and pull it up. And I was like, really, we have to do this? Do we have to do this every take? So we cut a comp, uh, we cut a reel together. He must've done it 20 times or something. So we have him, Billy Mays, doing it over and over and over again. You know, you good. No, so you're dealing with talent and 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 you're dealing with a product and you're also trying to sell something. And it's just it can be very hysterical sometimes. And I think the best lesson from that, that maybe this should be the lesson of this is the mic's always on. Yeah. Because I think we forget, I've even been the talent where the sound person is hearing everything I say. So I walk and if you say something bad about the guy that's over there and you think they can't hear you. Oh, the person running sound can, and there's a recording Great. of it. In so, fact, there have so been did, pretty famous that. people that that's happened to. We, we, we did that. Uh, we did live shows with Carol, you know, in front of an audience. So one night uh, she, told, she told me to tell the sound guy to leave her wireless mic on. And she went to the bathroom, unknowingly all well. And she went to the bathroom and she flushed. She did the whole thing and she didn't wash her hands on purpose. 
and she comes out pretending that she had, and the audience went, oh, you know, and Carol was, what? And then somebody yelled out, you know, because we had planned it, you know, you didn't wash your hand. Oh, and she ran back in. I mean, the whole thing. So yeah, leaving your mic on, uh, she, she wanted to do that for the audience like she was caught at it. Uh, they thought it was real. It wasn't. <laughs> and what's great about it is who'd have thought that bit right now, the whole washing your hands thing, maybe you should find that tape. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it wasn't on tape, unfortunately. Oh, now, was it always live? So all of that was happening. I mean, they had to. So when we see those bits of like, I, I think of the one with Tim Conway and Carol Burnett and they just die hysterically laughing. Like that's live in front of the audience, right? They're just yeah, they, they did live, two live shows. They did an afternoon show and an evening show. And so the afternoon show was a rehearsal, but it was still taped. And then the evening show was the actual performance show. Tim changed the lines between the two shows. He never repeated what he did in the afternoon. And that's why Harvey cracked up. And that's why Carol cracked up because he just made this stuff up. And they had a bet in the booth. I mean, this is what Bob Wright, who was the original producer of the show, who was my mentor. Um, they had a bet in the booth, not if Harvey would break up, but how long into the show? And those bets went up into the thousands of dollars that they that people bet on the timing. And people made a lot of money off of it. <laughs> I love it. And what's interesting about your story is now you're back in the Des Moines, Iowa area, but one of your sons stayed there, but one of your sons is in LA. And, and so now you do have family um, back in LA and you, you still go back out there. But how does that feel now that your, your kids are grown and you get to look back and um, at your choices and how it played out? And I know a lot of things didn't go at all the way you planned. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the, the path you took and, and how, it, how it turned out? I didn't expect either one of my boys to go into the business. Um, they had seen me working countless hours. And that's another downside of our business is there is no nine to five, there is no weekends, there is no clock, you know, the, you stop the clock. Um, so they swore up and down they'd never do this because of the hours. And my youngest son is, is a mechanical engineer here in Iowa, so he's the smart one. He didn't get in the business. And the other one is a head lighting guy. He's a gaffer in, in LA on network television shows. And he works 12, 14 hour days, five days a week. And he, and he can burn himself out. I mean, that's hard work on a set all day, but he loves it. He loves LA. He's not coming back to Iowa. What we did bringing the kids to raise them here was the right thing to do. The better schools, the friends, the being able to ride their bike off to the park all by themselves and not worry about some weirdo. Um, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And even my, my oldest son says that we gave him the foundation so he can live in LA and feel good about it. And isn't it funny because I did the opposite. I took my daughter from the Midwest to a neighborhood in LA, which was smaller and we were a little outside, but she could walk to school. So it's so funny, the perspective, but this was years later. I mean, by, by the time we got there, it was 2015. Uh, so you, you, your kids were there in a really tough time in the world. Uh, yeah, it was the, it was the eighties and, and then the riots hit in 92 and you know, the city blew up. I mean, we, from our home, we saw the smoke, the National Guard came out. I mean, they were around the stores, they were around our neighborhood. And, and in fact, the, the riots happened on a Thursday and Saturday, I put the kids in the car and I drove to South Central. I, I drove right into the where the riots were and I showed it to them. And I said, this, this is what hatred looks like. Mm -hmm. This is what ugly looks like. And we've got to do better. And you as kids have to do better. And then, you know, they were little kids and they're like, Aah. 
I don't know what to do with that. But I wanted them to see it. And they still remember that to this day. And they they do. I know both of them. Uh, you know, your family really works to make the world a better place. I know you're working on a documentary. Um, I know we have like a minute left, but <laughs> you have turned your career into working as a storyteller. And now it seems like in this later part of your career, um, you're doing something pretty wonderful. So I'm just giving you a teensy, teensy little window, but can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to? And then maybe if you have any final thoughts and are taking 20 that you want to leave us with. Well, the final thoughts are you got to do what your passion is. You got to do what you love. And that's what I'm doing. Here I am. I'm ready to retire. I could stop tomorrow, but I've taken on a major documentary, a full length documentary with a gentleman named Simon Estes, who's a world renowned opera singer. In fact, we just found out that the, he is inaugurated in the very first class of the Opera Hall of Fame. He is one of 10 that was called into that. So, you know, he's a major player in that. And I get to tell a story and he's a black gentleman who broke barriers and, and did all kinds of things. And for me, the, it's the honor that I have to share his story with the world. And I do it because I love it. It's my passion and that's what you have to do no matter what your field of business is or your interest, do what you love. And then it's not a job. Oh, I love it. And I, I think we couldn't end on a, a better note. And this is exactly what I love, getting to spend time with my friends, getting to spend time with you. And we just want to thank you, Steve Schott, for taking 20 with us. Thank you, Sean. This is, this is fun. Thanks for listening to this podcast. So as you know, you sharing with your friends will help us keep going. Also, please rate the podcast or review it or rate and review it if you liked it. Um, that helps people find us and it helps us share stories that we hope will encourage and help other people. Again, we really appreciate you. Thanks.